The Thought Leader video series is brought to you by LaForge. Learn more at laforgegroup.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode in our Thought Leaders video series. Today, I'm joined by Eric at the North American Equipment Dealers Association. Eric, can you give us a quick intro on who you are and what you do? Sure. I, uh, I'm Eric Wareham. I'm Vice President of Government Affairs for the North American Equipment Dealers Association. Okay. And uh, we recently, uh, you and I did a webinar on uh, right to repair the legislative landscape here on farm equipment, which is kind of why we got talking about this episode. And um, before we get into the, to the whole landscape, there was some recent news that came out of Colorado that a right to repair bill passed their Senate. I was hoping we could kind of get into some of the details of what's going on there for any dealers who are seeing the headlines and maybe concerned about the situation. Yeah, sure. You know, there has been a lot of movement on bills throughout the country this year. I think there's 58 bills introduced in 26 different states. Uh, so we've been, you know, fighting fires everywhere. Uh, Colorado quickly became a hot spot for us, passed out of the House very rapidly, went to the Senate. Uh, we had a very strong showing of dealer testimony in the Senate. However, the bill unfortunately did pass out, uh, but it was amended. And then it went to the Senate floor where it was further amended. And so now I uh, generally refer to that bill as somewhat of a Frankenstein uh, bill. It's got so many different pieces to and workarounds to address some of the inherent problems in the legislation itself. Uh so at this point, the bill has passed the Senate floor with additional amendments, uh, was sent back to the House for concurrence and was rejected. So now the process is that it goes to a uh, joint uh, committee uh, with House members and Senate members assigned to that to uh, sort out what the amendments are going to be and then have a final bill uh, that then is going to be uh, you know, sent to the governor's office. So, uh, and we have every indication that the governor at this point is going to sign that bill. So regardless of of what is actually contained in that, I think we will ultimately end up at this point with a right to repair bill passed that is specific to agriculture. And uh, that will be the first of its kind in the country. So that is a big deal. Um, and we're still waiting to see what exactly is going to be contained in that bill. There are a lot of amendments and uh, uh, we'll see what sticks and what doesn't. Um, I, I believe we got into the Colorado bill during uh, the webinar that was a couple weeks ago. Um, can you give us a rundown of, of the last time that you were familiar with the beer, the bill, what was all contained in it? Yeah. So, you know, at this point it's, there's, like we always say for right to repair, uh, we support customer right to repair, but we oppose the legislation. And that's because the legislation does very little to actually address customer self-repair. The two main components of the bill are one, uh, fixing the price of parts, which parts have never been a, uh, an issue. No one has ever claimed in the 100 plus hearings that I've attended or watched that they couldn't get a part. Uh, or that it wasn't available or accessible. So anyways, the legislation uh, addresses that in a very convoluted way. At this point, the latest amendments would basically cap uh, part sales at manufacturer suggested retail price. However, the other, the other component uh, in the bill related to parts is that it also 
requires the manufacturer to sell parts directly uh, to end users. Uh, so that would be a, a very large shakeup from what is the traditional supply chain model in our industry that has developed over 100 years, uh, but legislators seem to not really care about that. And I think it's an inherent distrust in, uh, in market forces, uh, but nonetheless, uh, and we can get into later the, some of the legal challenges around that, but that's part one, really addressing parts. Um, and then it's questionable because again, the convoluted language and the amount of amendments, whether manufacturers need to sell those parts at dealer net cost or at MSRP. Uh, the way the bill reads right now, it's it seems to be that uh, that deal, manufacturers would be required to sell at uh, the lowest terms and conditions that they provide to dealers, which would be their cost. So that would be a huge issue uh, because they can say, well, dealers can sell at MSRP, no higher, uh, but manufacturers are required to sell at uh, dealer net cost, which would circumvent the dealership. So. That's number one. Number two is the uh, is the is the provisions in the bill that allow access to embedded code, embedded software, uh, you know, to disable uh, security locks or security related functions in the course of maintenance and repair. Of course, that's unfettered access. There's some guarantees in the bill about what you know you can't use that access to um, to make modifications that would. Uh, that would be illegal under the Clean Air Act or other federal laws or state statutes. However, that's that's little comfort um, for dealers who are concerned in facing modifications of equipment daily. And uh, this bill seems to basically give carte blanche to anyone to to access, have full access, and will create a mandate for manufacturers to provide that access. Uh, there were also some other interesting. Mod, uh, amendments in the bill for data and at one point it looked like the the legislation was going to require manufacturers to provide uh, equipment data to anyone who requested it so now there's other amendments that are going back and trying to change that to make sure that the farmer has the ability to um, control who has access so it like I said it's a mess of a bill at this point and uh, really a Frankenstein bill that's very convoluted, very complex, uh, and even as an attorney, have difficulty reading and understanding the intent behind the language. One thing I had read in a, a report out, out of Colorado right after the vote passed was that um, there, I want to make sure I understand this right, that there was some amendment made that dealers wouldn't be held liable in cases of tampering. Is that true or, or is it written in that way? Are you aware of that? Well, there is part of the bill with that. However, again, the whole issue with the bill is that state law cannot supersede uh, federal law. That's what we call the supremacy clause, unless I fell asleep in constitutional law on the day that they got rid of the supremacy clause. Uh, that means the federal law trumps state law. So state law is trying to allow what federal law prohibits. So, for instance, on liability, what are we talking about? out there. I mean, is it liability for if the equipment is faulty? That's one thing. Uh, but when we talk about if there is a circumvented uh, technology protection measure that would lead to uh, 
eliminating emissions criteria to chip tune or do some ECU remapping. Well, under federal, under the EPA Clean Air Act uh, and EPA rules, uh, an owner or other person, independent repair shop, who performs that uh, has liability for up to $4,500 per occurrence. However, under that exact same law, authorized equipment dealers and manufacturers are subject to a penalty 10 times that, up to $45,000 per occurrence per piece of equipment for selling uh, or modifying equipment. So uh, that that has um, that has uh, illegal tampering and circumvention of emissions criteria. So, you know, state law can say whatever, the statute can say whatever it wants, but federal law still uh, has those penalties in place that create uh, a substantial liability for dealers who are dealing with equipment that's been modified. All right. Thank you for explaining that. It's, it helps to fully understand it. Um, now, so you had mentioned that the next, the bill's path currently has it in the hands of committees. Uh, how are you feeling about how that process is going to go? And then the path from there to, uh, you already said you, you believe the governor is going to sign it. What do you think is going to happen with those committees? Well, I don't feel very good at all, Ben. I mean, at, at this point, uh, the committees I've, we've been notified that they're not going to accept testimony, uh, from, from opposition, you know, doesn't surprise me in, in the hearing itself in the Senate that I, that I testified at, uh, we had, you know, 40 people from equipment dealers, uh, testify opposing the bill. It was a seven and a half hour long hearing. Uh, I would say 95% of that hearing was opposition testimony. And then you had a couple people from Colorado testify. And I mean, a couple, like two, three, were actually from Colorado testify in support of the bill. The remaining proponents who testified on the bill were people who, one, are outside groups, outside interests, not even attached to agriculture, although they claimed it to be a part of agriculture and know everything about our industry. Uh, and they uh, are from out of state. So we had, I think there was five proponents and 40 some plus uh, opponents to the legislation and the bill still passed. So I'm not really confident that people care about uh, the facts at this point or uh, the level of opposition. It's really become a political issue, uh, carte blanche across the country that is being pushed for, for other reasons that we're being swept into, um, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And like I said, in my committee, you know, uh, hearing testimony, uh, actually not in Colorado, but in Vermont, that good policy makes good politics, not the other way around. And good policy should be founded on a basis of facts. And I think there's a disregard entirely for what we are presenting uh, two committees and also being completely transparent as an industry and saying, come down to the dealership. If you have any questions about this, we'll put on a dealer demonstration. We've held over 50 of them in North America uh, on, on right to repair, inviting stakeholders, legislators, Farm Bureau members, commodity groups uh, to show them what we do. And then, and then request, you know, ask feedback about uh, does this meet your requirements? And I think when we do that, that's led to people saying, aha, yeah, this isn't about the availability and access to parts, tools, documentation, diagnostics. This is something else, because uh, here it is. And I think everybody at this point is on this issue is kind of, you know, like
like they're from Missouri, the show me state. You got you got to really show them what is actually uh, what we're actually doing as an industry. Um, but instead, we have legislators who, uh, you know, in hearings on these issues, who are sponsors of this legislation, uh, you know, don't know how to pronounce manufacturers' uh, names and uh, don't know what the major manufacturers are even. And you wonder why is someone like that sponsoring legislation that drastically and substantially affects our industry. Okay. Um, one thing I was wondering about is, um, and I was thinking about the class action suits that came against deer. We, we had the first one, the, the name of the farm escapes me, but after that we saw of momentum, the same lawsuit more or less pasted by a bunch of other people. And we saw lawsuit after lawsuit rolling in. Do you see some sort of legislative mo momentum building out of this once the governor signs it? Do you think it might be the same bill might be brought to other states? You know, it certainly could. Uh, and, that, you know, that's the that's the concern that it, there's always that has always been the concern. There's a domino effect that if one state passes it, the other states are more emboldened to do so. You know, it, it depends on the state at this point. You know, New York passed the right to repair bill, but exempted farm equipment. And and uh, so we saw that trend. And there's several states that have exempted farm equipment from right to repair bills this year. Uh, and, you know, it's un unfortunately uh, Colorado looks like they're going to pass it. Uh, we're at a point in this session where most of the legislation has already been killed off. Uh, it's you know, we're, we're deep into legislative session at this point. So the bills that haven't moved um, probably are not going to move or have missed deadlines, you know, crossover deadlines or chamber of origin uh, at a committee. Um, but there's still a several bills out there. Vermont uh, looks like they're, you know, maybe going to play some different games with uh, how to revive their legislation and get around those deadlines. Florida is really interesting. They have a Republican bill sponsor that just passed out of, uh, the Senate Ag Committee in Florida on an eight to zero vote unanimously uh, with a Republican sponsor and uh, not real sure if they understand entirely the, you know, the merits of the bill either. Now, before and I do want to get into um, an overview of the legislative landscape, um, but but one more question on the Colorado bill. So and, and we had talked about this before we started recording that the as I understand it, the going the effective date will be January first of next year. Um, for dealers in Colorado who are just hearing about this and aren't sure what it's going to do, what do you recommend? Do you have any recommendations on how they could prepare or, or anything they can do to kind of get ahead of the effective date? Well, you know, this is I don't want to get ahead of my skis here or or give anything away as far as strategy, but uh, you know that effective date sitting out there is also dependent on legal challenges. Uh, to the bill. And I think that there, if, you know, if there's legal challenges brought, there's a strong case for uh, obtaining a preliminary injunction uh, because there is a, a high likelihood of success on the merits uh, in that legal challenge. And also there would be a certain irre irreparable harm uh, caused by enforcement of the statute. So uh, those two things are the, the sort of test for if you can obtain a preliminary injunction that would last throughout the the life of that litigation. So I think the the legislation that that January first twenty four date is you know not set in stone yet, um, 
and it depends on, you know, there's different, uh, there's different issues as far as, uh, you know, who, who's going to bring that litigation forward, uh, based on standing, um, and enforcement of rights. So, you know, at this point, I don't think that it's, uh, you know, I would be overly, uh, concerned about trying to prep for that. And then generally in the, in the legislation too, um, if it sticks the way it is, which I'm not sure it will, um, you know, there's a couple different things. One is the bill right now contains a, a provision that if there is an MOU out there, that the MOU would trump state legislation if it provides the same or similar, uh, same level of access and availability of uh, parcels documentation. So, you know, we believe the MOU does that. Uh, so would the state law even be applicable? Uh, it might not. Also, right now, proponents of the bill are trying to remove that provision uh, that was adopted as an amendment. So we'll see. Yeah. Still, still premature, I think. Okay. Okay. And we saw um, Deer had their MOU, um, CNH Industrial did, and uh, um, it was reported by our sister publication, Ag Equipment Intelligence, on March 15th that Kubota was planning to explore their own with the Farm Bureau. So Maybe that'll create some relief if we're able to get those uh, out. Okay. Well, good ground covered on the Colorado bill. And and now shifting toward um, what was our original topic is the legislative landscape. Um, you mentioned Florida and Vermont. Um, are there other areas where the association is really focusing that, that maybe have more momentum than other states? Well, we have Missouri uh, as well. That's, you know, we have a, a very dogged, bill sponsor there who has brought the bill back every year for the last four years. I think it's lost momentum, uh, but we're still taking that very seriously. Um, although they just came back from their spring break, which is their unofficial sort of crossover deadline and the bill has not received a hearing. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. I think we're, we're paying close attention to it. Uh, Minnesota, there was an exemption um, that was adopted uh, on, on, in one chamber uh, for farm equipment from a broad-based right to repair bill. Um, with the advent of Colorado, is that going to stick? We'll see. Uh, the other chamber needs to concur. So uh, watching that there. And then, um, you know, Florida is certainly going to be uh, going to be a fight. And uh, and so we're, we're going to dig in there and uh, make sure that legislators are educated about our industry, everything dealers do to support customer repair. And then really too, I think this is a really important key, key component of this discussion is a lot of times we get caught in this um, explaining everything that we do and it makes it sound as if we are saying there's nothing to see here, there's no problem. I think it's really important as dealers that we acknowledge in our industry that we acknowledge that there is an issue with uptime. Um, and by us stating everything that's available and accessible, we're not discounting that. Um, there is an issue with uptime. It's just not attributable to access and availability of parts, tools, documentation, diagnostics, as all of us in the industry know. Uh, it's really attributable to other things like, you know, workforce development, uh, technician shortages, capacity in our industry, the availability and usage of remote diagnostic capabilities. Those are those are kind of the, the real issues here. And uh, and legislators need to understand that we're by by opposing the legislation, 
we're not, we support right to repair. We oppose the legislation because the legislation actually uh, does nothing to address uptime. It, it just is going to really upset uh, the apple cart and really change uh, the nature of our industry. Right. Okay. Well, we've covered some really good ground here. We've gotten into a lot of good information that I think some good education here. I wanted to ask at the end, so the situation in Colorado is progressing. You've mentioned some other states where there are, are fights ongoing. Um, what can dealers do to help with the cause? Great question, Ben. So, you know, be engaged is, is number one. Be engaged with your association. Uh, keep up on what's happening and when the time comes for, uh, you know, testimony or interaction with legislators, pick up the phone. Don't expect that somebody else is going to do it. Uh, you know, that's kind of a tragedy of the commons uh, situation. And what we really need is for people to all be engaged uh, on this and understand what the what the ramifications are for your business. And it's really not, you know, that intimidating to get to get involved, to pick up the phone, to make a call. And I can tell you right now, um, you know, as, as much as, as, uh, as I testify on this issue, uh, around the country without a doubt, uh, you know, 10 of me is worth hardly even one of a dealer contacting their legislator to explain their position. And it doesn't have to be eloquent. It doesn't have to be perfectly presented. Uh, you don't have to have an understanding fully of all the legal legalese, but your involvement is uh, is what makes the difference. Um, it's not me. And uh, what I do is kind of just focus the conversation, frame the debate and set up dealers to succeed uh, when we're entering into these kind of political arenas. But we have to be involved. The, the time for sticking your head in the sand is over uh, and hoping this goes away. It's not going to happen. The devil is always in the details. You can say, well, this is going to pass. Yeah, but the devil's in the details because the original bill uh, in Colorado said that you, dealers must sell parts at dealer net cost. Now, I don't know a dealer in this country who uh, whose business would be thriving if, that, if they were required to sell parts at cost. Uh, so there is a fight there, and we have to let people know. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, just be engaged. And, you know, for instance, uh, next week we have Naida is hosting our Washington DC fly-in. Um, we're going to have a Hill day. We have great meetings set up with, uh, senators and congressmen, uh, to talk about this issue and, and others affecting, uh, our industry. Um, and it's those relationships that matter, um, you know, for those States that where legislation has not moved, uh, you know, a lot of that is, is directly because a dealer had strong relationship uh, relationship with, you know, maybe a committee chairman um, or a key legislator uh, who really, you know, had an ear to listen and and receive, uh, be receptive to what uh, what our what our points are, and uh, and then was effective in convincing other legislators uh, of that perspective as well. So. It's a very relational business, just like our business is, just like farm equipment dealers are. It's very relational. Uh, so is politics. And uh, all politics are local, as one person once famously said. Uh, so we have to have those relationships. And uh, so get involved. And if you have any questions, I'm always available uh, to reach out to to see how you can do that. All right. 
Well, uh, I think that will conclude. We've covered some good ground. Thank you for your time, Eric. Thank you for keeping us all informed on the issues. And hopefully the next time we talk, we've got, uh, we've got some good progress made. Yeah, thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Talk to you soon.